after that. So, uh, Isaiah 25, we're in what's called the little apocalypse of Isaiah. Um, one of the reasons for calling it the little, apoc- little apocalypse <clears throat> is that it talks about worldwide judgment, in fact, cosmic judgment. And, uh, and yet almost nothing else that there is in apocalyptic literature is, re- is, is characteristic of this passage. But it, it talks about worldwide and cosmic changes and judgments. So uh, it's the little apocalypse. The, the um, structure is interesting. Chapter 24 that we looked at last week is a, is a passage on judgment. Chapter 25 is a celebration of deliverance, celebration of salvation. 26 is going to continue that, but, uh, and then 27 will return to judgment. So you have judgment on the two ends in the middle, celebration of deliverance. So chapter 25 then, uh, we take up, it's a fairly brief passage. I thought about going on into 26, but... That would take me into 27, so I thought, no, this is enough for today. So let's look at it. It divides into three parts. Um, So um, the first part, verses 1 to 5, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I I will give thanks to your name, for you have worked wonders. I, I understand what Jan and I didn't make it to the service this morning. I understand that the pastor was talking about losing a sense of awe in God. That's really easy to do. Um, I find in myself I don't have a sense of awe before God. Uh, to, to be in the position that I am, to have the responsibilities that I do, to have the privileges that I do, I should have a great deal of sense of awe before God, but I don't. This, this passage, though, these people, the prophet here, speaking for the people of the future, sees through the judgment the other side of deliverance and is is celebrating already. This is the way people, people in the Old Testament and the New do. When they get the promise of God, of deliverance, they begin to celebrate as if it's complete. It's already present. It's already finished. It's already present in the lives of the people. Um, so Mary, in Luke chapter 1, starts to celebrate as if all of the hardship of, of being a mother whose, who, whose son's paternity is open to question in a small town, all of those hardships are still ahead. And she knows what's going to happen. If you get to see that movie, The Nativity, um, they do a really good job in that. Uh, they do bad job of some things, but they do a really good job of showing the shame that, that would have gone along with Mary and Joseph in the town and what, what's going on with all that. They do a really good job of that. So here we are, Psalm I, I, Isaiah 25, celebrating as if the judgment has already fallen and full deliverance has come. The earth is now to be renewed, and they're celebrating that way. So again, verse 1, 
O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name. There's a lot of repetition in this passage. For you have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. For you have made a city into a heap, a fortified city into a ruin. A palace of strangers is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, a strong people will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. For you have been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in his, in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a vain storm against a wall. Like heat in drought, you subdue the uproar of the nations. Like heat in, uh, uh, by the shadow of a cloud, the uh, song of the ruthless is silenced. So here you have this first section. I, frankly, this may be a really short lesson. But, but the, the point here is, is simply to see the celebration and to understand that when you've seen the, the promise of God and you take it seriously, you begin to rejoice as if the promise is already fulfilled. I want you to remember that we're in 25, but 27 is coming. (laughs) Yes, we're going to go back to the judgment in chapter 27. So how are we to think about this? We're We're to look at the salvation we are experiencing as good, but nothing to be compared with the, with the salvation that awaits us. Are, are you with me here? Um, in Isaiah, he will eventually say to the Israelites, a day will come when you will no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. But you will say, as the Lord lives, who has gathered us from all the nations of the earth. For Israel, the great, image of salvation is the deliverance from Egypt. I've, I've just finished reading uh, The Wisdom of Solomon. I know you're just delighted by that and wishing you had read it yourself. <laughs> Amen? Uh, I'm going into the book of Sirach next and um, hope I can make it through it. It's Wisdom of Solomon is not in your Bible. <laughs> Hmm? Unless you're a Catholic. Catholic. Uh, But uh, at the end of the book of the Wisdom of Solomon, there is two or three times in those last chapters, there are 19 chapters in the book, two or three times they uh, go back through the story of the deliverance from Egypt. Um, For Israel, Egypt, the Exodus is... Salvation. So when in the Psalms you have that verse that many of us remember, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Um, the, the word so is not in the Hebrew text. <laughs> let, the, let the redeemed of the Lord say, and then it goes on with what the redeemed of the Lord should say. But that word redeemed is a word that's used. You, you know it as kinsman redeemer. Yeah. Um, uh, Every, every act of salvation for Israel is, for them, a repetition of the work uh, in the Exodus. And so, 
So that's all. That's the heart of salvation for them. What Isaiah is saying in these passages, and he will say again when we get back past chapter 40, what he will say again is the salvation that awaits you is so great that you won't even think of the exodus anymore. The salvation that's coming is so much greater than anything that you have experienced that that won't even come to mind when you talk about salvation. For you and me, when we think about salvation, do we think of the exodus first? No. No. We hardly even ever think about the exodus when we think about salvation. Why? Because the salvation that that we have, have come to know is so much greater than the salvation from the exodus. Yes? That it has transcended the exodus in our thinking. We can't we can't go there first. Down the road, we'll think, well, yeah, I mean, that's that, sure. That, that's a, an act of God saving people. Yes? Temporarily. Well, they're delivered, and they are the redeemed of the Lord throughout all the centuries that they lived in the land of Canaan. Um, and they still are the people. Uh, we looked at Hosea a few weeks ago. Turn back to Hosea for just a moment. Uh, I want you to remember Hosea chapter 3 um, because it's, it's the condition of Israel today. Um, so Hosea 3 verse 1. It's page 1,271. <laughs> 3. Hosea 3, verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, Go again, have a wo- love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. <laughs> raisin cakes are part of the worship of some of the goddesses in Canaanite and East, Near Eastern religion. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic, homer and a half of barley. That's, that's a pitiful price. It's, I mentioned to you when we were here a few weeks ago that if you have a slave whose um, your neighbor has an ox who gores your slave and kills him, then the... the uh, Restitution that the owner of the ox has to make is a payment of 30 shekels of silver. This is less, much, much less than that. And notice that it's barley, not wheat. That's poor man's food. This, this is a really pitiful price. I bought her for... See, if, if this is Gomer, as I think it is, um, nobody values her. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a, le- and a half of barley. Then I said to her, and here's the verse that I'm heading, heading for. Then I said to her, you shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have um, an, a man. So I will be also toward you. For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince, 
without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or household. Household idols is probably the wrong thing here, but maybe it's the right thing. Israel doesn't practice overt idolatry today. Does that make sense to you? Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling uh, to the Lord and to his goodness in the, in the last days. Now, I want you to remember that Hosea is a prophet to the northern kingdom. Yes? So coming and seeking David their king in the last days is a fairly significant thing. Fred? Uh, well, you, do, do you remember the temple at all, any of the construction of the temple? There were two pillars out in the front, uh, and, and Yaquin, Jachin. Um, so that may be what's in view, or a possibility, let me look at the context here. All meaning comes from context. It's, it's possible, though I, I can't say it's certain, um, that what's in view is the, is the Asherah poles, um, that were used in in idolatrous worship in in Canaan. Um, they don't worship any other god, but they don't have a really strong relationship with the Lord. Am I making sense to you? Are you speaking of now? Yeah. Okay. Look, sometime watch one of two movies about uh, that about the life of Israel. One is a fiddler on the roof, especially the one with Topol in it. Um, is it Topol? Yeah. Okay. Um, the piety that Topol ha- that that um, Tevya has is remarkable. Uh, he talks to God like one would talk with his friend, um, and one of the one of the memorable quotations is. Oh, Lord, I know that we are the chosen people, but once in a while, couldn't you choose someone else? <laughs> uh, uh, I just, I'm intrigued by that prayer. <laughs> so, but the other movie is a movie called The Chosen. It's a novel by Chaim Potok, P-O-T-O-K, and The Chosen is about two Jewish boys in New York City in the, late 19, in the mid-1940s. Um, they, they're growing up and, and one who is the son of a rabbi is training it wants to become a psychologist and one who's the son of a, of a what we would consider he, what, what the rabbi would consider a liberal a biblical scholar uh, wants to become a rabbi <laughs> uh, but um, uh, in it you will see how they pray and how they think about God and how they talk about God. These are both books, originally books, written by Jewish people. So they're not giving us here some kind of Christianized version. Am I making sense to you of what Judaism today is? They know they have only one God. But they're puzzled. They don't know quite how to live with him. Does this make sense to you? And this is Hosea chapter 3, 1 to, 1 to 5, at work in our day. So they're still the redeemed of the Lord, but they haven't come to know the greater salvation. But brothers and sisters, 
if salvation is coming for Israel, that's, gre that's greater than the Exodus. Is it possible that the salvation that awaits us is greater than the salvation we have known? Are you with me? So it may be uh, in the resurrection that we will begin to think of that as salvation. So Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. Um, Hebrews 1, 14. He's talking about the angels at this point, but he has a rather remarkable statement. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service to those who will inherit salvation? Uh, now, there was a perfectly good form in Hebrew, and, and this author is a remarkable um, craftsman in writing Greek. There was a perfectly good form to represent the, the future there, who will inherit. He didn't use that form. He used a different form, which I won't burden you with. There are two words for this in, in Greek, to, to inherit, or to be about to inherit. That other form often uses, or is used, to express either something that's on the verge of happen, happening or something that's coming and, and is certain. Are you with me here? So I like to read this, paraphrase it, those who are about to inherit salvation. How much of your inheritance can you spend when you're about to inherit it? None. What are the chances that he, Hebrews here is talking about a salvation we don't yet have? I, and, and this is a key verse for me. Uh, look at 2.4, just for a moment, of 2.5 it is. For he did not subject to angels the world which is coming, about which we are speaking. The author tells us what he thinks he's talking about. Are you with me? So what is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the world which is coming. But I've been reading about Jesus. I didn't know we were talking about the world which is coming, but the author is telling me how to read chapter 1 again. I need, therefore, to go back and reread chapter 1. And when I read it, um, uh, to which of the angels did he say, you are my son, this day I have begotten you, is future. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your personal possession. Are you with me here? Did David ever get it? No. Or, again, he, uh, he shall be a son to me, and I will be his father. Um, uh, and in verse 6, let all, when, when, he be, when he again brings the firstborn into the world, that word again is probably in the right place. Um, but, uh, but your translation may have it uh, in a different place. There are different interpretations of verse 6. But I think the way to read this is when he again brings the son into the world. Firstborn. Yeah, firstborn. Yeah, that's right. I, I'm, I'm speaking from memory, not from reading. Uh, when he brings the firstborn again into the world. Uh, is it saying again or is it bringing again? I think it's bringing again. Yeah. What, what's the point? He's talking about the world to come. 
Are you with me here? So, folks, in Hebrews, and this is a side issue from what we're trying to do in Isaiah 25, but the uh, but um, Hebrews, I think, is talking about a, a salvation we don't have yet. So chapter 6 can't be talking about losing what you don't have. You can't lose what you don't have. But you may not you may forfeit the opportunity to get what you don't have yet. Um, You know this. There are three aspects of salvation that we teach theologically. There is the initial phase of salvation, new birth, justification. Yes? There is the progressive phase that we call sanctification. The the New Testament doesn't, but we do. Uh, And third... There is the uh, final, the, uh, where's the word? There's a word that I've wanted here. Uh, Final is, is, will do. Um, Yeah, which we call glorification. Hebrews, I think, is talking about glorification. So, So Hebrews is no book to go to to find out whether you can lose your salvation or not. If you don't have it, you can't lose it. But you can lose the opportunity to get what you don't have yet. Does this make sense to you? Yes. So in Romans 10, I think it is, 9 or 10, where Paul said, and so all Israel will be saved. Mm -hmm. Is this not speaking of that? Yeah, it is. Are you talking about in Hebrews? Or in... In In Hebrews 1 and 2. Yeah. Well, it's talking about that same time when the Lord finally brings uh, salvation to the whole earth. Are you, are you, um, I'll see, um, are you redeemed? You're sure? Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Turn to Romans 8. (laughs) You're sure you're redeemed? Romans 8. I I probably have the wrong verse here, but it'll... It'll work kind of in context. Um, pardon? Isn't the promise of being redeemed the same as being redeemed? Well, you see, but we've, we've always taught, and rightly so, the New Testament teaches that born-again people are redeemed. But there's another perspective on this. Um, I'll tell you in a minute. I've got to find it myself. Uh, um let me think, where, what, what is the context? Um, in verse 24, for I hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen. Not yeah, that's not what I'm looking for. You stop the process. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, there it is. Um, Shh. <laughs> Uh, oh dear while we await the adoption the where is that I can't find it it won't show up no that's not what I'm waiting 22 thank you no oh there it is 23 that's it boy you wouldn't be quiet I just needed quiet for a minute (laughs) I got a cluttered brain. I got to sort through the clutter, and you're just adding more clutter. Versus, 
Well, but there wasn't anything there. <laughs> it's just cobwebs. <laughs> it's that pill. That's what it is. Well, maybe it's because my mother said you are a pill. <laughs> verse, verse 23. And not only this, but we ourselves having the first fruit of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, awaiting eagerly our adoption as sons. What is the adoption of our, uh, 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 as sons? The redemption of our bodies. Are you redeemed or not? We're both redeemed and waiting for a, a greater redemption. No, no, it has. So there are different senses of redemption. One is redemption from the penalty of sin. That's complete. But it hasn't been applied to our bodies yet. So we're both redeemed and not yet redeemed. Is that where they get the expression already but not yet? Yeah. So, folks, uh, this morning we have been rehearsing this already not yet thing. Are you with me here? The salvation that's coming is going to take away all the problems that we have. Yes? Okay, I have Can we go back then to um, the, the Jews that were saved from Egypt? Mm-hmm. They were saved, but they got a lot of suffering to do in the meantime. Oh, yeah. So, can we sort of say that's an analogy? Yes. Uh, let's clarify some of our language here. We, we as Christians use the word save and we think of new birth and justification. Israel is saved. In the Old Testament, the word save almost never means that. Um, it's very, one, well, save is the, the right word. Deliver. Okay. Uh, but, but the word, the, the root for the name Jesus, Yeshua, in Aramaic, is yashak, to save. And that's the word that's used frequently. There are many. There are several words for deliverance, salvation in the Old Testament. They're, they're delivered from bondage to, sin, to, to, to slavery, but they're not de- delivered from the bondage of sin. Yes? So, so well, it's, no, they're still, they're not, they weren't slaves. You know, so they're really delivered. They're really saved. They're they're redeemed. They are bought. They're not redeemed from themselves. Not redeemed from themselves. They're redeemed from slavery. Yes, sir. Is this more of an explanation of the difference between being redeemed spiritually versus physically? Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to to talk about it. the The issue for us is to think about Israel as delivered. And the word, the, the word save, the word salvation is appropriate. It's part of what that word means in Hebrew. But it doesn't mean in context what it means for you and me. Some of them were born again. As is evident from the fact that you have men like Phineas. You, do you remember Phineas? No? Okay. He's one of the sons of uh, Aaron. Um... um Phineas, is, no, that's a different two, uh, Nadab and Abihu. But Phineas is the one when the Israelites were having little worship services with the Moabite women. Yes. Uh, well, that's what it was. Uh, he went in, he saw a man 
when the congregation was gathered in, in uh, grief over the judgment of God, he saw a man of Israel going into the tent with, with a Moabite woman, and he, uh, as he was the son of Aaron, he took a, a spear and he went in and, and, and drove it through both of them together in one, in one thrust. Uh, and God gave him a, an eternal uh, covenant of priesthood. So he's a man who loves the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his strength. Does this make sense to you? Yes. He loves God more than he loves Israel. The, the issue is there are many. How many? I don't know. What, what kind of percentages are we talking about? I have no idea. I have no way to even think about it. There are many who are born again among the people of Israel in the days of Moses, but that doesn't get passed on to their descendants. What, what we're talking about here, brothers and sisters, what, the reason I got into all this is Isaiah chapter 25, 1 to 5, that we just read, where the salvation that's coming is so much greater than the salvation of the past that you no longer even think of the, the past as salvation. That's why we're having, in part, why we're having this question about, well, what's, what happened then to Israel? What's the right way to talk about it? Well, their salvation was a great salvation. It was a massive work of God. It was an amazing work of God. But we don't even think of it when we talk about salvation anymore. We have reached a point where Isaiah says Israel will eventually get where, where we don't even think about the Exodus when we think about salvation. We think about Jesus and the resurrection and the, and the, the deliverance from the, from the penalty of sin, yes? And the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit in us. I got a, a text from a brother in India uh, last night asking about whether we're under the Ten Commandments or not. And I said, well... I said, it's kind of hard in a, in a text message to, <laughs> to discuss that. I said um, um, something that was really important. And I, oh, <laughs> we tend to think that we can trust commandments more than we can trust the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm better, if, if I will give you rules, I'm better at controlling your spiritual life than the Holy Spirit is. No, I'm not. But that, see, see, organizationally, that's the way we think. Organismically, it's not. If the church is an organization, it's got to have rules. If the church is an organism, the life principle of the organism is what controls it. Are you with me? Then we get hung up on the rules. And so I, I just pointed out a couple of things to him and said, if you're able, if you can get on Amazon, there's a book available that you can look at, a shameless self-commercial, self-promotion. But, but, but my point is, folks, we've already reached in one sense, we've already reached what Isaiah 25, 1 to 5 has anticipated for Israel. Does that make sense to you? We've reached a salvation which is so much greater than theirs that we don't even think of the Exodus as salvation. So, but then 
I don't feel the awe that the prophet does in verses 1 to 5 as he celebrates. And notice how repetitive some of these verses are. Did you notice that as we read through? You, you just can't say enough about what the Lord has done. <laughs> it's almost like it's the tension between faith and reality. Yeah, well, yeah. And so he's living in a reality, Isaiah is, in which none of this has come to pass. All of this is future. And yet, as a prophet, he's already beginning to sense and experience the greatness of the promises. And so he lives in light of the promises. But that's what faith is. You live in light of the promises. Um, was, was thinking about this yesterday for some reason. I can't recall what the precise reason was. But what can we trust God for? What kinds of problems can we trust God in facing? Um, well, when I've, when I've been driving 70 in a school zone, I cannot trust God to deliver me from the speeding ticket. Yes, that's not an option. That's not an issue. Uh, can I trust that I won't have a, a, um, a challenged budget? As a result of that, no, I can't trust that. God, God provides everything we need. That's true, but uh, one of the things I need when I've been driving 70 in a school zone is a pretty hefty school, uh, uh, speeding ticket. Yes? Yeah? Yeah, I need that discipline, and I may have to... Pardon? Read our detector. Read our detector. No, no that won't, that's not what I need. What I need is to have to cut back my budget in some key places... There are certain things I can't cut back, but there are some things I can. So instead of steak, we may be eating beans and cornbread this month. Are you with me? Yes, no, yes. So what kinds of problems can we trust God for? They are the problems that arise because we're pursuing the Lord. Now, what kinds of problems arise because we're pursuing the Lord? I don't know. (laughs) Some of them I know. Overt persecution is one. But illness may well be another. Uh, When Paul talks about suffering in Romans 8, he doesn't specify what kind of suffering. And I'm inclined in Romans 8 even to go to the point of saying the hardship of having to cut back your budget is one of those sufferings that God intends to use to build us into the image of Christ. Are you with me here? That it will be costly enough to me that I'll decide maybe Paul was right in Romans 13 when he says obey the government. I want you to remember it was not a Republican government. It was Emperor Claudius at best, Emperor Nero at worst. Are you you with me here? Caligula in between. So, So when he says... Those who are in authority are ministers of God. I am given the responsibility to obey the government whether I like the government or not. Yes, sir. We need discernment to know when the government's laws yes. cause us to compromise. God. Yes, and that's the balance on this. When the, when the government requires me to disobey Scripture, then I must go the direction of the apostles whether it's right to obey men or God, we leave that to you. Uh, but we will obey the Lord. And so they went into more persecution because of their commitment. The, the point that is then, brothers and sisters, that uh, I must learn to trust the, trust the Lord 
in light of the promises, does it not feel like it's a long, long, long time in coming? Does it not feel like I would never say it that the Lord has forgotten his promises. Do you not think, Lord, how much worse does it have to get before you bring Jesus back? But you see, faith is only faith when there's not any overt reason for it except what I have learned about God and what I know about his promises. Are you with me here? So I go on trusting. And faith, when it is experiencing the awe that is appropriate to the person of God, not because he requires it, but because he is an awe-inspiring God. Awe-full is a good word, but has been turned in bad directions. He is full of of characteristics that inspire awe in us. So, verses 1 to 5, you begin to rejoice and talk like the promises have been fulfilled already. Verses 6 through 8, we've pretty much expounded all that I can say about this chapter, so let's just read to the end. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples, not just Israel, but all peoples, on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. And on this mountain, he will... Sw- Fred, you may not be able to go. Uh, did, yeah, you may not be able to be there. But uh, uh, on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering which, which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time. The Lord, the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. He will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. They're going to have grape juice there too. And it, will be, and it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God, for whom we have waited. That word waited is the same word that is occurring in Isaiah 40. Um, They that wait upon the Lord. The word kava in Hebrew. There's a a noun that it's derived from kav, which is a, a, um, a measuring line. But a measuring line is always taut. So there may be a sense of tension in this waiting. Um, behold, this is our God for whom we have waited tensely that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation for the hand. And it hasn't even come yet for Isaiah or for you and me. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain and Moab, which is probably standing here for all the nations, Moab will be trodden down in this place straw is tra- as straw is trodden down in water of a manure pile. 
and he will spread out his hands in the middle of it as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pride together with the trickery of his hands. The unassailable fortifications of your walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground, even to the dust. Then our enemies, brothers and sisters, those who hate us, as Joe mentioned just a few minutes ago, the very name of Jesus was offensive. Those for whom the very name of Jesus is offensive may be in power now, but it doesn't matter. This is a time of tense waiting for you and me. Yes? The people who, for whom the name of Jesus is offensive may use their power destructively for us, but it doesn't matter. This is a time of waiting tensely for you and me. And the right response for us is to wait tensely, but with great joy and certainty that the Lord has spoken. Let's close with prayer. Father, I don't hold you in awe. You are awesome. You are grand beyond our understanding. You're magnificent. Uh, if, if we only understood, if we could only see, it would help so much. And yet you have called on us to be people who do not walk by sight. We walk by faith. Faith.